Hey guys, just to let you know, this particular episode of Conversations About Dot 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 is going to be part of the NSC Roadshow. Here's an opportunity to get to hear about some awesome Kickstarters, writers, artists, and inkers and different things like that, different people who are involved in creating their own Kickstarter campaigns. You can join up on these campaigns. You can go support these campaigns. And all you have to do is go to www.inkedmarketing in order to find out more about these wonderful Kickstarter projects as they go. Thank you for joining us. Let's get ready for the show. I know you're going to dig this. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another fun-filled, fun-packed episode of Conversations About Dot Dot Dot. My name is Will, and today I get the privilege of speaking with Justin Gray concerning his uh, Kickstarter project, Bleeding Pulp Comics, issues one and two, and we're going to talk to him. So first of all, Mr. Gray, say hello to everybody. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on, Will. Not a problem at all, sir. Uh, so first things first, I always start where I want to, especially when we're talking about Kickstarter projects. Uh, what inspired you to come up with this very unique idea if you will uh um you know i can't say for sure it was one of those things where i was going through back files and emails and just cleaning up old material and i saw the title and i was like wait what is this and i looked at what i had written down which was essentially sort of a an adult version of um ghostbusters i I don't mean adult isn't whatever i mean just like for grown-ups as opposed to, you know, the original Ghostbusters was um, accessible to everyone. Um, <clears throat> so I looked at the thing and I loved the title and the idea that came to me from seeing the title was different from what was on the paper. And, and I sat down and I wrote 40 pages of script in one sitting. And I just sort of latched onto this, this old idea that I had squirreled away. And um, that's when I reached out to Roy Silviera uh, because we were, he's the artist and we were talking about the next project we were going to do together. And I said, listen, I know we talked about this and that, but I really feel like this is something that we should do um, immediately. And so that's what happened. And so uh, <clears throat> I Eat Monsters became part of the um, multi-story comic under the Bleeding Pulp title. Mm-hmm. Um, because I like to, when I'm doing Kickstarters, I like to try and give more material to people. So when they're backing something, they aren't just backing essentially what would be a floppy or a single issue of something that's on the stands now, depending on which company you order from, which is anywhere between 18 to 20 pages of content to 30 something pages of content, depending on uh, who's publishing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, I saw where there's two basically, so it's, it feels a bit like an anthology, but it, but, but a little bit more than that, because you've got, you know, two volumes of I Eat Monsters, and then you've got the story of, uh, I'm just looking back at it, yeah. uh, uh, Madame Bedlam and the Order of the Zendok Part 2. Right. So you've got um, a little bit. Yeah, and that's a two-part complete story, because I think that's important. <clears throat> Rather than do two long serialized stories, I wanted to do uh, a main story that was either four or six, you know, between four and six, uh, issues long and in like at 28 pages a piece instead of it just being ads and everything else. And then to, to also add a secondary story that would be completed in two, three, four, whatever, whatever the length was, but you got complete stories out of both on a different timeline. 
initially I wanted to do um, two, two and two with the main story being six issues. Um, but then I started working on the issue that's going to be in, um, uh, in the next, in issue three, and that turned out to be more than two issues. So, um, <laughs> okay. So I saw one of the, the pieces of merch that you had for this was an apron. And I thought to myself, I was like, well, that'd be interesting if one day, you know, he's at a con or something. And it has like people at the aprons cooking like monster themed foods, you know, talk about, you know, I eat monsters and things like that. So, uh, what, how did you come up with the idea for the aprons? <laughs> you know, it's really funny. Um, first of all, I worked in restaurants for a long time and I, I started out being a dishwasher and a busboy, and I went away all the way up to being a head chef at one point. Um, so I've done everything, um, except bartend in a restaurant and own one. And um, <clears throat> while I was putting it together, um, the artist, Roy, he wanted to do like an Instagram post type image of Annabelle sort of taking a picture of herself with the food. And it occurred to me that it would be fun and funny to do a limited amount of aprons with specific images on them. So I did one, I did a blind box for the first issue where I put in an apron. And then this time I just offered an apron limited to this uh, this Kickstarter. And, um, I mean, when you, when you spend, I went to culinary school and, uh, I went to BOCES culinary in high school because mm -hmm. I absolutely hated high school and, um, any opportunity to get away from it was good to me. So I, I did that. And then I started, I mean, I was working in restaurants when I was 13, I was a bus boy and, um, <clears throat> I decided that it would be a fun thing for people. And I hope that they would like it because you don't know, I mean, I know a lot of my backers, but I don't know all of them. So sometimes right. you know, I get a, um, a message from a guy in Texas who's a big barbecue guy. And he was asking about the quality of the apron. And I said, you know, I said, you know, you're not going to do 700 plates, you know, a shift, but I think you should be fine in your backyard with your friends. <laughs> kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Which is what I thought it was. Yeah, definitely. So it's, it's interesting too, because it kind of ties in with the whole eating of monsters. So how, okay, so we're going to break this down into a little bit of each project within the, within the project you're doing. So we'll start with a little bit of how, because I'm reading the concept about Annabelle and how some stuff happened. And without giving away any spoilers on it, how did you kind of come up with this idea, first of all, for the first part of this, which is the I Eat Monster portion? Um, <clears throat> I was looking to do something different. I wanted, I want, I, when I, when I do comics for myself, I try um, to have fun doing them. I try to make them entertaining for people. Um, you know, and there's different levels of entertainment. And, and with the pulp books, I tend to be more lighthearted and more um, less less interested in in you know the sort of structure of things and um, more interested in fun and entertainment and distraction um, because obviously we've needed that now for for quite a few years. And um, with all the things going on in the world, I, you know, I have a serious book in standstill, but in these pulp books, I just want people to escape. You know, I want it to be popcorn fiction. I, I want it not to take itself too seriously, but still be entertaining and still know that I'm putting, you know, a, a thousand percent into everything I'm doing, even if there's, you know, even if it's just meant to be, you know, a popcorn flick mm -hmm. in a sense. Um, I, I want, you know, I want people to, to experience the characters i want them to root for them but i also want them to be able to just turn off their brain for a little while 
and have fun. And, and, you know, that's, that's a thing that I think comics has always been very good at. Um, I know we have literary comics that are masterpieces, um, but there's also a need for things to just sort of be fun. Yeah. Makes sense. And, and so we talk about that and then we go into the second part of it, which is uh, Madame Bedlam, the order of the Zodiac with H.P. Lovecraft. So H.P. Lovecraft, a character in the story. Yes, I, I, you know, I tend to look at these things as sort of an alternate reality. Okay. And so this is an alternate reality in which my character meets an actual uh, in version of H.P. Lovecraft and deals with his uh, immense talent, which is still, I mean, there, are, you know, there's a handful of writers who have created a mythology and a universe that has lived as long as H.P. Lovecraft. And so many different people have covered it, and there's so many um, <clears throat> elements to Lovecraft that are controversial and strange and from a completely different time period. Um, but what I wanted to do was a period piece based on the fact that I had created this character who is over 300 years old. So she can, she can exist in certain periods of time and interact with things that, um, that makes it exciting for me to write. You know, I like to do period pieces. I like to do the dialogue. Um, I like to, you know, for instance, Madame Bildown has a sort of, you know, progressive attitude towards women's fashion and how women should be treated. And the character's also lesbian. So while that's not at the forefront or any messaging, it's just who she is. It's interesting to be able to put her in situations like the 1930s uh, when women were, you know, were considered controversial just for wearing pants. And, you know, this, it's ridiculous today. At least it should be. Um, a lot of the social tropes that we uh, had to grow up with, or not, not just us, but through time. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to be able to have fun with those. Also, it's creatively freeing um, to be able to say, you know, it's like watching an old movie. I love old movies. I love old, um, all different genres, whether they're from the 50s or the 40s or the 60s and 70s and so on. Um, so sometimes playing in that sandbox is great. So, and the idea of using H.P. Lovecraft, um, I had a very specific idea, which gets realized here in this issue in the second half of the story, which is a complete story um, that I think is part of, part of the mythology of, of H.P. Lovecraft, but also looks at it in a sense of a sort of Twilight Zone episode, like, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of feel to it. Pretty interesting there. Now, you mentioned a part of your team with you. You mentioned your artist for I Eat Monsters. But let's talk a little bit about the team. That's one of the things we know is that when you, especially when you're coming to kickstarting a project and things like that, we know that it's not a single man's job to do everything. I mean, you've right. got to have your artists, you've got to have your writers, letterers. Uh, different cover artists and things like that. So talk to me a little bit about the team. All right. So uh, for Madame Bildam, it's been Milianko, uh, Milianko Simic. Um, I apologize if I just butchered his name. Um, and uh, Alessio Nocera. Um, so when I saw Milianko's work, it had a very distinct sort of, it reminded me of Jordi Brene. It reminded me of um, that era of European comics and I really liked the, the sort of the, it felt right for the, for the story that I was wanting to tell. Um, so I reached out to him online and I said, you know, I see he was doing at the time, he was doing a Hemingway, illustrating a Hemingway story, which was right around the same time period, 30s, 40s, I think. I can't remember exactly the one he was doing. Um, <clears throat> and 
we, we originally were going to do it in black and white. And I was thinking um, of doing the whole book in black and white. And, and Rui doing I Eat Monsters was like so adamant about color. And so I was like, all right, let's, let's do color. So then I didn't want to do, because it makes no sense to me financially to do half a book in color and half a book as a black and white book because you pay color for the whole book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, have, I don't have the luxury of just doing, okay, this book is just going to have the color red in it or the color blue in it. Um, so I reached out to Alessia and who had colored um, two previous books that I had done with Jimmy Palmiotti that were both Kickstarters. One was Abaddon and the other one was Hype and those were both for... Um, a joint venture that we did as paper films and um, adaptive. And uh, we, you know, the, I looked at her work and I really wanted her to compliment, you know, they're both European. So I wanted to continue the feeling of that style of comic. And mm-hmm. uh, it was fun because I, you know, uh, Milenko did the artwork all on the board. There was no, he didn't do any digital artwork. He did traditional art. Okay. And he would cut the he would cut the pages in half so he could carry them with him between his home, his studio, and his work uh, while riding a bicycle. And of course, I was like, "This is you know, there's going to be a vibe to this comic that's going to be different from anything that I could have asked anyone to do." Mm-hmm. And I tend to like to work with people from all over and with lots of different backgrounds, so I can say, you know, what can you, or not even if I say it, but you know, they bring different things to the comics you know they didn't grow up reading comic x and everything they've done has been sort of emulating comic x mm-hmm. um so i like that and uh, i like different influences i like different tones and feels for for whatever the work is i like everything to have its own feel mm-hmm. well that makes sense it, it definitely does that and so i see one of the things on here that's really interesting too is for example the uh free bonuses as people go and of course we know we have a little bit of time not very much time until the campaign ends but talk to me a little bit about the um, stretch goals that have been open because there's a lot of digital comics and things on there there's other really cool stuff on there as well that you're wanting to get unlocked yeah i mean there, there is a lot of stuff that i would like to get unlocked you know i i it, this, i will start by saying this has been the most competitive time slot that i've ever seen on Kickstarter since I've been doing it. Um, I don't know if everybody was like trying to cut into the tax return situation. I don't know, it doesn't matter to me like, cause I understand all of it, but there were so many campaigns at so many high levels. And we're talking like, I think at one point I had an estimate where there was like at least $5 million in comic book specific crowdfunding being raised at one point in May. And, um, and I was counting on one hand the people who hadn't jumped in to do a Kickstarter between May and June. And, um, and then I started looking deeper into it people who, that I don't follow or I didn't know where all of a sudden I was like, well, you start releasing art books that are automatically out of the gate, $200,000 Kickstarter campaigns. And then you look at some of the, some of the consistent players and people who have you know, really perfected the audience growth and have back um, back history in terms of establishing fan bases. Mm-hmm. It just was, it was just nuts. And, um, I'm, I'm so grateful for everyone that's been supporting, um, you know, bleeding pulp because the competition is ferocious at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, you know, the, 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 I, I decided to try and move away from the idea of stretch goals because it isn't, it isn't some, just the phrasing of it. Just the, real, the reality is, is the more money that I can raise on a Kickstarter, even beyond what I'm asking, gets rolled right over into the next one and allows right. me more flexibility to hire more people to do better by the creators and, um, you know, to, to branch out and experiment more. And because this was my 20th one, I really wanted to try some different things. I reached out to backers. I asked them what kinds of stretch goals they would want. And I really tried to incorporate that because sometimes my thinking, I get so stuck in my own head and my own reality that I sometimes forget the marketing side of it. And, 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 you know, I reached out to Inc marketing um, and I asked, you know, them uh, like, what can we do together to sort of, you know, look at how do we make this, um, this campaign stand out. And, mm -hmm. and I had completely forgotten about Memorial day. And then, you know, like, it's funny cause I, you know, I work so hard on these things, but there's stuff that I just have blank spots on. So it's nice to have a resource where you can ask other people to look at, your world with a fresh set of eyes. Mm. And um, the, so I decided to call them bonus rewards because that's really what they are. If we raise X amount of things, it's not, it's not that I'm trying to stretch the money. It's that I wanna keep rewarding people that come to, to back the project because I believe in it and I believe in the product. If you're just interested in the comic and you don't care about all the bells and whistles and all the other stuff, I feel like that you're going to get a quality book in your hands, whether you know, right. printing the, the production on it, the artwork. And so <clears throat> I kind of looked at rebranding that and saying, you know, I want people to get these things, you know, first and foremost, I really want them to be invested in the comics themselves, but as other things go and I do things and I, and then I don't do them again, you know, I may, I may, I may do an overprint of like five copies. So then those five copies are just something that I have on my website. Once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. Um, which I think is important for, for people that are backing it to feel like they're, they are getting something special and they, they are the, you know, I spent so many years working for corporate comics that it was, I was trying to appease the people who are paying my checks. And right now I feel so much happier and, and freer and creative working with the people who actually support the work. Mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah. One of the goals I haven't seen quite cracked quite yet. It's on the verge of getting cracked. But it's not been cracked quite yet. Is uh, wrestling with demons. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that. That is a comic that was originally published um, through Dark Horse. And we, um, we reacquired the rights. And it is a story about an MMA fighter getting his first shot at the undercard of a major event, winning a pay-per-view event or whatever. And so he's driving from California to Las Vegas with his teenage daughter. And she's not interested, you know, and she's a teenage daughter. She's got her headphones on. She doesn't really want to talk. And it's boring. You know, like, oh, we're going to see my dad get his face punched in in Las Vegas. What am I going to do? I'm going to be stuck in a hotel room. And, and so along the way, she wants to stop at, at this sort of ghost town. And she convinces her dad that that's what they should do. So they get out, they stretch their legs. And within a matter of, you know, five or 10 minutes, she's gone. And he doesn't know where she is. Okay. And it's starting to get dark. And as he's looking around this, this ghost town for her, all these expensive cars start pulling up and okay. all these people in elaborate, you know, what you think it was the Emmys or the Oscars, these people getting out of these cars in the middle of a desert at a ghost town. And as it turns out, <clears throat> this is a location, a sort of hell mouth, if you will, just for lack of a better term, okay. where 
humans wager money or they owe debts in Vegas or they're trying to you know pay for something or a cancer treatment for a loved one that they can't afford. So they're fighters and they go and they fight demons, literally for money. Okay. And um, that's the basic premise. And so the father's, his daughter gets kidnapped and he has to fight for her. Uh-huh. And he has to, you know, he has to essentially save her soul. And, um, you know, Andy Kuhn is the artist. I, I, I co-wrote it with Jimmy Palmiotti. And um, it, it's just one of those, um, it was just one of those things that, that kind of popped into my head as a great concept and title. Um, and so Dark Horse published it. I think it was in Dark Horse Presents, probably as three parts. And then, um, and so we, when we got the rights back to it, we immediately wanted to, you know, make it accessible for everyone and, and have it back out there. Because to me, it was a, a no brainer as a, as a property. This was back when my, my main focus was transitioning properties from comics to film um, solely because there's just there's not a lot of money in comics in, when you relate it to games, video games, and film yeah. and everything else. So, okay. Um, so it seemed like a no brainer to me. Yeah. And so another question leading in that thought process is: so you you mentioned earlier about having uh, Ink Publishing and them helping you out as far as getting this done. You had done many Kickstarters prior. Right. Uh, what was something that you learned? from having them be involved with this particular project? I think it's more of a, um, it's a symbiotic relationship. I think we, we learn things from each other um, in the, in the, in the uh, handful of times that we've um, worked together on a campaign. Um, I, you know, I, I get along really well with Kevin. So it's more of a, um, a friendship. And I was introduced to Kevin through another friend, Rich Boom. And, um, you know, it's like, it, it's, you know, they're, they're supporting things that I just kind of am exhausted at this point. Like I'll do, I'll do so much work on these campaigns. I'll, I'll be, you know, three months out, I'll have been building and rebuilding and refurbishing and, and going over and over again on this campaigns and, and trying to figure out all the things I should do. And then, you know, like I said, with the Memorial Day thing, Kevin was like, what are you doing for it? And I was like, oh my God, I didn't think about that. And now, now I'm like, oh, I got to build myself around because it's very hard. You don't have a regular publishing schedule and you also have an, an issue with um, shipping and availability on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I, and I strive to have some kind of stabilize, I'm gonna do book one in January, book two in, February, you know, in March or whatever, um, it becomes very difficult when those elements don't all come. There's a lot of things in motion. Mm-hmm. So. It's things like that where, you know, I'm like, oh, I thought of everything, but you never really think of everything. So it's always good to at least have someone to come in and say, you didn't think of everything. Here's the thing you should think of and have you tried it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, uh, you know, and and everything is just, uh, you know, what any kind of relationship you go into, whether it's with a marketing company, whether it's an artist or a colorist or a publisher, you're, you're, you have to have your expectations and you set your expectations to and goals to what you're getting into. Um, mm-hmm. So while, you know, you know, I know that if I, if I have a relationship with an artist and they're consistent and we understand each other, I know that's going to go a lot smoother than someone that I suddenly just find out that they quit the book and gone and done something else, but neglected to mention to me what was happening. Mm-hmm. 
which hasn't happened. I know it's happened to other Kickstarter creators and other creators in general. And I've had, I've worked with hundreds of artists and everyone is different. And, you know, sometimes things just get in the way and life can be, you know, confusing and, and people have, you know, emotions and everything else. So mm -hmm. um, establishing relationships is the number one thing with me and, and knowing that if I'm consistent, I want to know that the other person is consistent. Yeah. And another thing I always try to ask people, especially when we're dealing with Kickstarters is, okay, so take a person who has never done a Kickstarter before that are interested in doing a Kickstarter. We know you've done several. What is something you would recommend for them to do kind of first things? You need to know your numbers. I know that's a cliche, but if you don't understand down to the dime what your product costs you, what it's going to take to print it, what it's going to take to ship it, um, and build in things like damages. Um, if you don't know that and you get hit with stuff and you just, you know, you find out um, that shipping internationally is a crime syndicate and that there is no, you know, you have to plan accordingly. And I, I agonize over stuff like that because, you know, I have, I have people that are adamant supporters all over the world and they pay exorbitant prices just for shipping and it, it sickens me that that's the system in place and there's no way to change it it's only actually getting worse mm -hmm. the fact that the you know the united states postal service is practically bankrupt so they're constantly cutting costs and, and raising they're they're cutting service and raising prices and i don't i'm not mad at them i'm just saying it's a reality of what that situation is um so if you don't know what it costs down to the bag the board the postage the printing what you're paying, you know, to, to produce the comic, then you don't know how to price it accordingly. And so, you know, sometimes I see Kickstarter campaigns and I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what they're doing with, if they're going to do international shipping for $5 on a $2 book. And I'm like, it just doesn't like, I've, I've seen that I'm, I'm just throwing out numbers, but where it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. and they're going to tank and then they're going to be mad and they're going to kickstarter sucks and then they won't be able to deliver to people so then the people who are potential backers are going to be frustrated and um i mean normal stuff happens in everyday life like artists sometimes quit books and then you have to kind of scramble to fix the situation there mm -hmm. um but if you don't know your basic cost analysis and then you know you're you're never going to be able to price things and and effectively run a campaign that that i mean the, the ideal is that you cover your bases you break even um anything over that you know we won't even get into people who run who ran scam campaigns who who disappeared and never delivered products and stuff like that because I mean, yeah. that's just not, that's not the way i operate so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna address that because that's not a different thing right. but you, you you have to know all that stuff otherwise you're going to be extremely frustrated and I mean, I've gotten burned on a couple of things. I've gotten burned on the December Kickstarter or the November Kickstarter and the January um, postal increase where all of a sudden I'm paying a dollar more per unit. And that's like, it sounds like a dollar more. What's the big deal? But when you're talking about thousands of dollars, you're talking about, about thousands of units. That's a lot of money. <laughs> that's a dollar a unit. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I, the amount of money I spend when I do postage, it's insane. I'm literally like, oh, your account has $10 left and I'm like $500 literally and sometimes it's sickening like i'll have an eight i'll have an 800 to a thousand dollar postage day where i'm just sitting here filling out labels and printing labels and i'm like 
oh, ran out of money again. Here's another five hundred dollars, and and so if you don't if you don't know that that's coming, it could be it could be sickening. Almost feels like at some point we should start working on a book from uh, talking to Kickstarter people who dug Kickstarters and just be like, it may not be the definitive thing because of course things change. But it'd be yeah. interesting to come up with a book from a lot of Kickstarters and just be like, look, because I've seen people do books like this is my Kickstarter experience, but that doesn't mean that that's the holistic approach because things change and everybody's experience is a little bit different. So it'd be cool to have a book, uh, a Kickstarter, a guide to Kickstarter that... <laughs> It may have 10 versions by the time it's all over. Oh, it would definitely, would definitely have, you know, you would have conflicting things because the, there are so many variables involved. Um, you know, I, I see people there. First of all, there's the, it's just going to work because it's what works on Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, there are certain things that if you manage to do them the right way and nail them, um, they can be extremely successful. And then you have projects where, um, sort of the tame version of it is just because um, just because you might marry someone doesn't mean anyone else finds them attractive, which is mm -hmm. the sense of sometimes a project just doesn't resonate with anyone but you or anyone but you and 10 other people. And it just happens. And it's not a reflection of you. It's just like that idea maybe doesn't have legs. Maybe it's time to think about another one. And Kickstarter can slam you down on the ground very quickly with that. Um, and that's even without even considering all the elements of how you design a page and how you present yourself. Um, but it's, you know, there, there are so many things, you know, Pat Shand, who's another Kickstarter, um, he frequent does Kickstarters, you know, I, he has a, he has a um, personal podcast and, and we talk all the time and, and I talk to other Kickstarter creators and it's like, there are certain things that, you know, will pop off and certain things that, you know, I've had, I've had established pros who have worked in the industry reach out to me and say, well, you know, what, what is the thing about, or the trick to Kickstarter or the thing to Kickstarter? And, and, and there isn't a trick to it. It's just, it's not like a recipe where you go, okay, if I throw two and two things together, because a lot of comics, especially mainstream comics, they, they approach it with that and, and film and media in general. They're like, if I put this character, this actor with this actress in this kind of movie, it's guaranteed to make this amount of money or if i put this writer and this artist on this comic um it's guaranteed to be successful and it doesn't always work that way yeah right and I, and that's the reality of it i mean that's the bottom line i mean you you've gotta and, and also too you think about like you talked about memorial day you know you talked about how much of a difference that comes into play here because it's just like okay i didn't think about that at the time we were putting it out there yeah, but there's you know, had you put out say a book about a soldier fighting in a fighting in a war, kind of the struggle of a soldier fighting in a war, it could have done a whole lot differently based on when the campaign went off. Yep, I mean, I've I've definitely tried to time things for Halloween because I do a lot of horror stuff, and that it was naturally would be a great Halloween um, thing, and you know, and that's the that's the difference between. You know, that's something that I'm still learning, even though um, I've been doing this for a while. The idea of like, I really have to have more forethought, even if I don't have exact control over delivery times and everything else to say, you know, okay, I'm going to fall during Memorial Day or it's going to fall during Pride Month or and to have things that help the campaign based on those dates. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of stuff to it. 
Yeah, and that, and that does make viable sense. I mean, uh, the whole idea of it also is that you have to you have to not only deal with putting it together, but then also figure it out. Okay, so what are my next steps? What are those things that I'm going to do to make this work? It's by the fact that it's Memorial Day weekend, and I'm having to deal with the the uh, whether having the money together or things like that, different things. So, I mean, that's a, that's a viable thing. So what is, to answer to ask another question in, in lieu to the project itself, um, what is the goal for the story going forward? I mean, do we already have, I know we got one and two of uh, I Eat Monsters, and we've also got the second part to this other story that's in the book. Where do you see these stories going? How much further do you see these stories going out? Um, well, I, like I said, initially, I think I Eat Monsters is between four and, and six chapters. Um, and then um, starting in book three, the backup story is called Blue Geisha. And that's a monster creature feature set in feudal Japan. Um, and uh, that, that was something that, like I said, I started, you know, I, I wrote the first, it's 26 pages. So these books just keep getting bigger. I really have to... I really have to focus more on not doing so many pages, um, but because I'm going to run, you know, run out of space in the bags. I'm now using Silver Age bags and boards to cover these because they don't fit in the mm -hmm. regular ones. Um, so initially that started out as a two, you know, I was going to do two, you know, three and four and five and six. We're going to have self-contained two-part stories in each of them. But all of a sudden I was writing Blue Geisha and I was like, oh, the story's getting bigger and there's more things I need to tell about it. So um, that that might be longer than that. I might have to extend that and then do like a one shot at the end or something like that. I think that's one of the things I really enjoy about doing it this way, aside from the overall creative process being so fluid and hands-on, like some of these comics I'm writing right up to the end. I'm writing on the artwork um, and revising and, and changing things and ideas have come to me um, just looking at the, the drawn pages of certain books. And I've been like, oh, I really should have gone in this direction. And amazingly, it just kind of all syncs up. And but the idea is that, you know, the character of Annabelle is starting to grow on me and I'm starting to see a bigger pattern to her universe and seeing this potentially, you know, these six chapters of this opening story, it could function as an origin story for a character who does this moving forward. And, um, and so I always keep that, that door open, you know, and I, and I like to see how people respond to things I had done Spicy Pulp, which is the sort of sci-fi fantasy sister to this book, where it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, pirates traveling through time and space or, or bounty hunters that, you know, that are like a blend of Lobo and Strawberry Shortcake or, you know, doing a sword and sorcery comic that's like <laughs> a rom-com starring, you know, a Conan type character. And, um, you know, and seeing the characters, you know, what resonates with people. So I had done um, Lady Redbeard had I had done four parts two different self-contained stories with that character because she seemed to resonate with people and she's a lot of fun to write and the cast is a lot of fun to write um, so you know I'm always thinking you know I I want to do when I started doing this primarily because I was tired of people telling me what I couldn't couldn't do mm -hmm. in a comic story or what I couldn't couldn't write and um, that that's what really pushed me into these, you know, these titles was the idea that I was just going to do what I wanted to do and I'll do it for me. And right. if anybody else likes it, then they like it. And the same thing happened with Billy the Kit, which was the strangest thing because I, 
I, I started working on Billy the Kit and I was thinking, no one's going to buy this. I'm like, this is crazy. This is a gunslinging, talking rabbit in the old West fighting tornadoes. And, and it, people really resonated with it. They, you know, I, I wanted to write something that wasn't from my own experience and a character that wasn't, didn't have a background. Like I had a background, but you know, that, that's why I do it. Mm -hmm. We, we have a sponsor. So we've been sponsored. Have you ever tested your nerd kung fu? If you ever tested kung fu, nerd kung fu, yes, your nerd kung fu. Now I know what you're thinking. What is nerd kung fu? Because it's not like we're gonna get a bunch of nerds fighting in a ring. But maybe it's about how you look. Maybe it's about being able to show off that nerd thing that you dig. You know what I mean? Do you like The Office? Do you like Star Wars? Do you like Jurassic Park? Do you like video games, anime, movies, etc.? Because if you do, you can get your nerd kung fu on. In the description on the podcast, there will be a link. You can go there and you can order up to your heart's desire on anything from shirts to socks to posters and all sorts of things. Even The Godfather. So if you're down into movies and video games and comic books and or things like that tv shows even i mean like i said the office firefly is represented they got all sorts of stuff it's all legally licensed official stuff jingle spider uh what's your nerd kung fu uh my nerd kung fu is weak but i feel like by following the link in the description i might be able to make it stronger spider what's your nerd kung fu my nerd kung fu is a southern style it uh is very fast very aggressive Mostly uses just the two first knuckles on my hand to knock people out, but that's only because the stunt people are kind enough to fall over. It's up to you how your nerd kung fu is. We appreciate you checking it out and grabbing the link and getting your stuff from nerdkungfu.com. Okay, so you mentioned something in the book, one of the books that you had, about a cross-up between Strawberry Shortcake and Lobo. Do what now? <laughs> <laughs> I um, I don't know. I had this ridiculous idea of like this character called Strawberry Milk, who was a, a, a like what if Lobo and Strawberry Shortcake had a kid, um, and so she's this you know spacefaring bounty hunter character, and um, you know, it's just I just wrote this goofy story about how she works for a uh, cultural appropriation defense agency that um you know stops other aliens from assuming the culture of a planet they might want to invade and so there's this one particular alien species um that likes to completely decimate planets by stealing everything from them culturally and then just using it as part of their next step of evolution and <clears throat> the general idea was that she figured out a plan on how to um self-destruct them by feeding them a bunch of information and a bunch of cultural things, music and stuff from, from earth um, that would stop them from invading this planet. Not our planet, but another alien world. Yeah. It sounds like a interesting concept. Cause you said that I was just like, uh, I, I'm familiar with strawberry shortcake and familiar with Lobo. I, I just need to know how he mashed that all up together. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, the fight, you know, like the thing is like they, there's this spacefaring race and they um, accidentally stumbled across one, you know, we'd shoot those um, satellites into space with records and, and kitschy stuff on them. Just, you know, like to show 
this is our planet. And, and so th these aliens got a hold of a bunch of Elvis memorabilia. And so they sort of adopted that and they became this vanguard force that went out to look to their next inhabitant planet. And they were all these Elvis monsters um, that would speak in like gibberish, you know, like clips from his music and his movies and everything else, but just be kind of like a vampiric <laughs> race that, you know, they just consume everything in their way. And, and people try to break out musicals and she has to shut that down so that that way you don't have just musicals run really running off anywhere. <laughs> right. They have like an embryo planet that moves towards a, a planet that they want to essentially fertilize themselves with. And she figures out a way to shoot a rocket full of stuff into the, the egg and it assimilates all the, the information she gives them. And then it puts on this amazing concert. Okay. I'm giving, I'm giving away the whole story, but um, it's only eight pages, so it's not it's hard not to give away the whole story, but yeah, definitely. But uh that said, now I really want to make sure to do this as well. Uh like I said, we're at we're at the time of recording, we're looking at about uh 19,381 is what's currently showing. Uh about 581 backers. We definitely want more backers in there before the end, if at all possible. And then also we want to get you as many uh, bonuses unlocked for people as possible. So that way people can get the best benefit out of this. Is there a particular bonus that hasn't been unlocked yet that you feel like the people should definitely try to go for? Well, you know, I, I really tried to do a bunch of different things this time. You know, there's metal trading cards that everyone gets. And then I started doing these, um, these rewards where it was like randomly placed into packages. So, you know, it would be sort of a surprise if you got, you know, a metal print from, from whatever cover image it is. And um, uh, yeah, obviously one of them is that 25 backers will randomly get, in a, you know, a printed, a freshly printed new version of uh, Wrestling With Demons just inserted into their package. And, you know, you know you've won it when you get it. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I also, I did a tie-in. There's a scene in the second issue here where um, Madame Beldam is in a bar on this island uh, on what's called Breckmore Island, which is, Madame Beldam is actually the, the inca 1930s incarnation of a character that was in Spicy Pulp called the Road Witch. And okay. so um, we're seeing her version, her 30s version, and on this island that's supposed to be taken over by the cult of Zadok. And her and H.P. Lovecraft go there trying to save one of H.P.'s friends. And there's a bar on the island. So I came up with these coasters and I, I designed the coaster myself graphically. And so I thought that would be a fun tie into the comic because, you know, so, like sometimes I forget, you know, it, that's a great idea is to like actually physically have something from a story. Um, so I've been trying to work on ideas uh, where, where I can do that, where it's organic and it makes sense. It's not just sort of shoved in there to, to get a bonus goal it's it, it makes sense um and then while i was doing this while i was doing the bonus reward i came up with this whole mythology about who established the island which never gets covered in the story it's only covered in the coaster that i'm offering as the bonus goal and i was like oh, oh. okay you know, i was like oh the island was discovered by this guy and you know this is the pub that's there and i was like i'm either crazy or just i'm i'm having a lot of fun regardless yeah I was gonna say too. It's funny. Uh, one of the things I saw was poker chip mm. at a certain point, and so I was just like, "That's interesting," because you mentioned, you know, underground food eating competitions, the illegal street races, street fights. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, huh? Okay, so yeah, you're definitely betting on a lot more than just money. 
you know, if you're involved in underground eating competitions. Or, or yeah, I mean, the thing with Annabelle is she's so self-destructive. She blames herself um, for her brothers being killed because she couldn't help them. And it's haunted her her whole life because she was, not only was she accused of actually murdering her brothers, she wasn't capable of saving them. And everybody thinks she's crazy because yeah. she says a monster came out from underneath the bed and killed my brothers. And they're like, yeah, it looks like you kind of ate them, you weirdo. And you know, like, she just, she's so damaged from that, that all, and then she went, there's a section, like, I like to put stuff in stories where you don't always see it. I think that's kind of, you know, inferred stuff is sometimes just as interesting as if we're watching it on screen or reading it. And the idea is that, you know, she did try to do the monster hunting thing and it didn't work out at all because, you know, number one, no one believes kids. And, you know, this whole tragedy of this, the reality is monsters can't possibly exist. So in issue two, she finally gets concrete, you know, concrete proof that monsters do exist, but that opens up a whole other can of worms for her storyline as to what happened to her family, who this masked man is that comes in with a baby monster in a specialized container. Um, so she goes from kind of being damaged and accepting that she can't save and, you know, she can't solve this mystery. And so she's slowly trying to come up with ways to just hurt herself. Okay. And, um, and then she finally realizes um, that she doesn't want to destroy herself, that she now has to figure out exactly what happened. Okay. And so it definitely, I mean, it, it sounds like you got some really good story things going on here and you got some really good opportunities to roll the story. Uh, I always try to ask this a lot of times, Kickstarter, but I have time with them. Uh, if you could cast, if you could, if you could cast a movie version of uh, I Eat Monsters, who would you cast as your lead? You know, it's funny. Uh, this is another one of those things that I used to do all the time. I used to expressly say, um, you know, what if we did this actor in this role? And you can see it in some of my earlier work. You see it a lot in 21 Down, the first comic that I ever did serialized um, for Wildstorm. Um, there's a lot of characters that are portrayed by actors in there. And, and then, you know, uh, the first six issues that we did of Jonah Hex, um, there's a lot of you know, references to spaghetti Western actors. And with, with the stuff I've been doing lately, it's more a look or a vibe or, um, you know, I wanted Annabelle to be very much, you know, a Southern girl. Um, I wanted her have to have that attitude, to have that aesthetic. I wanted cowboy boots, a cowboy hat, denim shorts. I wanted that sort of um, button down shirt tied at the ribs kind of thing. Um, you know, she's a football fan. She's, um, you know, it's a different kind of character, I think, than, than what I've been seeing. And so, you know, I pulled really obscure references. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll see a look of an adult actress and I'll say, I, you know, I think that this, this person would be a good basis. Or sometimes I'll see, um, you know, I'll be looking for something and I'll accidentally come across someone that I think has the perfect look for the character, but it's not so much anymore me looking for actors that would, that would do it. And sometimes I get asked by artists are like, well, what actor do you see doing this? And I'm like, it's not really an actor. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, aesthetic, I would say. So you'd be looking more for a person who can convey a lot of the emotional sensibilities and things like that, but also the ver kind of a verbal, approach because somebody i thought about honestly when you described that was uh the young lady and i can't think of her name right now that played the original daisy duke back in her younger days 
you kind of described that from a physical standpoint, but also more of that down home kind of good old Southern girl style. Right. I mean, I think I think there's a little Miranda Lambert style, like when she was younger, some of that in there, some of that country and Western look that we don't see, you know, I mean, I'm not from the South, but I wanted to at least, um, you know, to, to have a viable character that like could fit into that. You know, I mean, I just I, I, I've really been on this quest to, to look at characters outside of myself for for the last five or six years and writing characters that are not at all me and they don't have to reflect my views because a lot of times I see there's I see two things I see um, people being accused of pushing their agenda or pushing their their moral views on things through comics or through media um, and I thought I don't want to do that I, I want to just tell stories but I want the characters to be genuine so if I'm writing a character and you identify with that character it's not because I was trying to get you for a specific purpose I wasn't saying here's character a that fits this mold or i have to have x amount of these characters in the story and where i just want them to be real people regardless of whether or not you agree with their lifestyle or you have issues with you know their political beliefs it was more along the lines of that so i've been trying to do that and put myself in in uh challenging positions with characters gotcha and that, and that definitely folds out. I mean, when it comes to that, I mean, you definitely want to be able to write the way you want to write, present the characters. And I think uh, I think that even if you don't necessarily agree with a particular character stance on something, you could appreciate the character if they're real. If it doesn't feel like you're just like, hey, look, uh, this is A. We've, we've checked off this. We've checked mm-hmm. off that. We've checked off this. We've checked off that. Okay, here's your comic. And it's just like, but what about the humanity of it all? What about the character? What about the drive and the motivations, you know, of things that they do? You know, like I, I, I have friends that uh, are not big fans of Cyclops uh, from X-Men, for example, because, you know, there was this point where, like, he was endued by the power of Dark Phoenix and then he killed Professor Xavier for a little while. Like, Xavier was just gone. And over a long time, they never really dealt with the ramifications of him killing his mentor. Mm-hmm. Like, he, there's really nothing in the books for a while that really let him deal with it. I mean, yeah, they did the whole time jump where they brought the younger, displaced X-Men out. Beast's idea was, well, if he sees his younger version, more ide- idolic, uh, not idolic, that's not the word, idealistic, there we go. If, we see a more, if he sees a younger, more idealistic version of himself, maybe he'll come back to the side of the angels. But it's just like, from what I read, he nearly never comes to and says, like, bro, I was horrible. Mm-hmm. Like, I really did some horrible stuff. That wasn't good. Yeah, I was under the influence of the Phoenix Force, but that wasn't cool. That's such a waste of a great come to Jesus moment, isn't it? It's just kind of like to have a self-revelation revelation for the characters, like, that's gold. Like, you, you kill to have that opportunity. Yeah. You know, it's not pulling kittens out of trees all the time. No. And like it's, it's that it's that thing of the remorse of I took out a person that I agreed with due to this power that I had, and due to me thinking I could bring this to pass, I ended up killing up killing the one man that was truly trying to bring it to pass, regardless of my situation, regardless of anything else. And so it's really interesting that they didn't really tap into that. Like eventually, it was just like okay, so the young Cyclops kind of existed in his own little pocket over here, and then. The other Cyclops, and eventually I just somehow brought Charles Xavier back, and I'm like, "Well, what? Where are the stakes? 
if yeah, this is my issue with the multiverse and the multiple versions of characters and i mean i understand the attraction of it but having been in it and having you know i mean my, my thing is like if anyone can wear the costume then what is what is the character like i understand that we want we want the character to change over time and grow and sometimes it's hard to reboot something that's 70 years old but if anyone can just be the character, I don't know. It just doesn't seem as special to me. Yeah. And, and I know there's plenty of people that would disagree with me. And it's not like I don't, I don't like different incarnations of characters. You know, I like the flash, but I don't like the idea that, you know, there's 20 of them or something like that. It just doesn't, you know, it's not special. And I've seen it work really well. I mean, into the spider verse, I thought also, um, the, the last Spider-Man movie did a really good job with what it had, but that's, that's like, just do that and then go back to, you did it. Like yeah. it worked, you cleaned everything up. And I think that's initially what those things were about when they did those events, they were trying to clear everything up and get back to the vein of what those characters were. And then all of a sudden people were like, Oh, I love obscure character from planet two, five, nine. And I really want more of that. And, and, um, and, you know, that's the difference between what I like doing and what you have to do to to make a corporation profitable. Yeah. And I mean, like case in point, for example, you know, you talk about that. You talk about the multiverse idea. You think back to Spider-Man, for example, you talk about like multiverse of madness and things like that. And, and, and also, you know, no, no way home. Cause that's all kind of interconnected. Right. I haven't watched the Doctor Strange one, but I did just recently watch No Way Home because I'm not. I'm not as invested in all that stuff anymore as I, as I once was. So I don't, I don't, I don't see it. This, you know, I don't, I don't rush out to see it. Yeah. But it's interesting too, because like, I remember way back in the day, like before they created Miles Morales, one of the talking points uh, for the comic was in the ultimate universe, they were wanting to do Captain America. Like they, at one point we're talking about honestly casting Will Smith as Captain America. And I, especially as a black man had a problem with that. So I'm like, okay, so that can work. Uh, but you need to do that before Steve Rogers. Like there's history in mm. black people being experimented on for different things. The Skiggy Institute being the primary thing. Sure. To where you could do that before you get to Steve Rogers. And they were like, well, why would you want Will Smith to play Captain America as Captain America, Steve Rogers? I was like, well, first of all, because, you know, for the longest time when Captain America was created, it was punching Hitler in the face. And so if you have the idea of the Uber munch, um, you have to create the thing that looks like the thing that you're trying to describe as the ultimate good guy, but fighting against you. Because right. if Will Smith is fighting against, if, if a black man is fighting Hitler, and I said, and, and they were like, well, you don't have any proof of that. Yes, I do. Jesse Owens. Right. Jesse Owens. I, I, I knew you were going to go there. And that's great. In Germany, and Hitler would not even put the medal on him. Like they had to go get the medal and like come bring it out there to him because Hitler himself wouldn't do it, even though they were in Germany. Why? Because this man that was inferior to him in his mind shouldn't have won the race to begin with. So why is he going to honor him by putting the medal on him for the first place with? Yeah. And so it's like you can't take that because if you take Captain America and make him black as a primary Captain America, he never takes it seriously. And I love that they later spun that into Joe Quesada and some of the others at Marvel spun that into the whole truth thing to where it was the idea of, okay, so yeah, we're going to go into history and we're going to go into our own version of Tuskegee and we're going to test this stuff of super serum soldiers on these black soldiers 
and a lot of them are going to either die or they're not going to be the same when it's over. Mm-hmm. And I love that because of the fact that it's from a historic place. And so then you have, you know, you can, you know, you know, of course they end up doing Isaiah Bradley really well in the Falcon Winter Soldier series. And the idea that he was mentally slower because of the serum, that it wasn't a perfect serum. Mm-hmm. So it took all these failures to get the one serum right with Steve Rogers. And so then to, to even tell that story beyond that of having this. Which is even man. like, that's even more uh, messed up. You yeah. know, like there's so much context in that, that but I, I, I like what you're saying, because a lot yeah. of times I, I, I kind of tune out when, when that stuff is happening, because it never seems to go in a, it never has a conversation like you're having with me right now, where it's logic based, it's calm, it's rational. It somehow always becomes just bombastic and and upsetting to yeah. watch those conversations unfold. I, I tend to duck out of those conversations once they become that way. No. Just because for one, I don't feel like that produces anything of quality. No. But two, it also doesn't help further the conversation of, okay, so what, you brought me this, what can we do to make this work? Right. Because if we can't make it work and we're just gonna yell at each other for 45 minutes to an hour, also, you don't, you know, you, you these, these, if you want to build this mythology, you want people to care about these characters, you have to respect the mythology behind it. You have to create a genuine mythology that isn't, that isn't just, we have to fill this slot with what we think will appease this group or give us great PR or any of that other stuff. And I know that's a tricky thing to do. And I'm, I'm very glad that I don't have to do that. Um, you know, I've been in those positions where um, I, I've worked on incarnations of characters and I said, you know, why don't we, why don't we look at a different life experience for this character as opposed to, you know, like if anybody can become this character, then let's look at somebody who we wouldn't expect to be that character. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're talking about like a, a, a historic basis for a character like Captain America, yeah, you, you would have to like, you couldn't just be like, okay, this guy's Captain America because he drank some fuzzy soda. You know, like it just doesn't make, it doesn't do anyone any good and it doesn't make good art. Right. And so, I mean, you have to build story and you have to build this idea of a character. So it's like, okay, you've got truth over here. And by the end of truth, and here's the thing that was cooler. In truth, you find out Steve Rogers had no idea that this was going on. And so like he shows up as Isaiah Bradley's house near the end of the run and, you know, all he has left is this torn outfit, this Captain America outfit that he wore. And historically speaking, he was the first to don the outfit. And right. so Captain America just shows up. He's like, you, I, I see you've got these pictures. You want to take a picture together? He's like, oh, yeah. And so, of course, he takes this picture. And the last picture he takes up is the one of him and Captain America together. And so it kind of pays the story forward. And as you have this whole horrific thing that happened, but out of this horrific thing that happened, you not only have this really great, compelling story, and at the end, you have the flawed subject and the perfect subject being made, and the perfect subject coming back and saying, you know, I wouldn't exist without you. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of it becomes the idea of you have the Young Avengers kind of spawned out of that as well, because Isaiah Bradley's grandson is part of the Young Avengers. Mm in the books. And so you have that whole story. And so even where he's really angry and upset because he's like, people won't recognize the fact that my grandfather was the first Captain America. And like, people just didn't know it wasn't a thing because that book hadn't come out yet. 
Like they literally introduced it as a one panel thing in Young Avengers. And then like maybe six months later, Truth came out. And so it's like, oh, wait a minute. There's this whole other story behind the Super Serum Soldier, Super Soldier Serum that I had no idea about. Let me go right. get that. You know, and so yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it, it, that sounds to me like it was perfectly executed in a way that that is not only satisfying but genuine. Yeah, and I mean that's the thing. I mean, and you, I mean, it's just, it's it's you want a story to feel organic when it's done. Yeah, and you just you don't want to just have like it would be lovely if you could tell a story about Hellboy where he literally takes somebody to the surface. He just has a really good time. He's not recognized by anybody. He's not messed with by anybody. There's no demons that show up. But that's like, what's compelling about that story? Oh, you find out that maybe the little boy he took, maybe that's his, that was his dying wish. Mm-hmm. Just to go to the circus with a favorite superhero. And so Hellboy just shows up one morning and it's just like, I'm here to take Timmy to the circus. And it's just this this weird thing because yeah, you're gonna see the weird looks, you're gonna see the different things, you're gonna see the odd, like him not being able to fit in a bumper car, for example. Because I'm pretty sure physiology, phys- physically speaking, he may not be able to fit in that vehicle well. But it's the funny part of him trying for the sake of this kid, you know, or it's trying to eat a corn dog with the right hand to whom. Right. <laughs> so, different things like that, but it's it's how you organically tell the story, and I really appreciate that. That's something you try to do in the stories that you're telling. You really want to tell an organic story. That's pretty awesome. So we want to make sure we get people the links. We want to make sure people get to know where to go in order to get their hands on the book and the course and the liner notes. We'll make sure to have that information in the um, liner notes as well. But I want to let you tell people where they can find the stuff. Uh, well, it's on Kickstarter right now. If you If you search Bleeding Pulp, you should absolutely find it. Um, and that, you know, obviously we'll have links here. Um, but there's, it, it ends at noon on Thursday, Eastern gotcha. standard time. And, um, you know, we're just, we're just pushing forward. want to get uh, as many backers as we can. And, and, and so we can start, we've already finished the backup story is drawn, um, for issue three, uh, which is blue geisha. And then Roy is, um, working on, I eat monsters three, which is totally written and, and, uh, issue four is all written as well. So we're just, what we want to do is we want to be able to finish these stories to tell them to the best of our ability with the highest quality art. And, um, you know, that's what the Kickstarter experience, all the backers, I can never thank them enough. I always feel like I'm probably just droning on and on to them and, and it becomes disingenuous, but it really isn't because I, they, they help me realize that it's much more fulfilling to, do this for them than it was to do this to make sure the book didn't get canceled yeah and, and you know as great as it was doing certain things um and especially jo- i'll always say jonah hex was the greatest experience i had um at dc um not that there weren't other great moments but the, the idea that we um were convinced that that book was going to be canceled before issue 12 and somehow we stretched it to 72 and we got to do exactly what we wanted to do how we wanted to do it and then after that, that experience wasn't available to me anymore. And yeah. so um, Kickstarter makes that experience valuable, you know, available to me again. So I can now just create and not worry about, you know, margins and bottom lines and reviews and, mm-hmm. and the, you know, the people that support the book enjoy it and they enjoy it, you know, as often as I can and put it out. And if I could do all, if I could do 10 books monthly, I would. Right. Um, but you know, right now I'm trying. I'm trying to do my best with with all this stuff. Okay. And, 
and I appreciate everyone that, that backs and they, they, I hope they know it because I'm constantly available to them. I'm constantly talking to people and um, messaging and emailing and, 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 you know, I hope that it comes across that I greatly appreciate all of their support. Okay. I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Now, uh, thank you guys for joining us on this conversation. I've been talking with Justin Gray uh, about Bleeding Pulp uh, Volumes 1 and 2 together along with uh, I Eat Monsters and the, uh, I'm sorry, it's just a good bow. It's Madame Bildam. Right. It's kind of a play on words, but it is a tongue twister. Madame Bedlam and the Order of Zodok with H.P. Lovecraft. So, yep. had a chance to get a chance to talk to you about that and get into that Kickstarter, get involved. Uh, you still got a little bit of time to jump in. If you want to jump in on it, please feel free to do so. There's a lot of digital prizes and things like that. Bonuses that are there and available, and a lot more to hopefully be opened up. So, I uh, hope you're all able to get in on this. I thank you once again. Above all else, guys, do me a favor. Be blessed. Be blessed with somebody, guys. Take care.